So tonight, um, what we're going to actually do is cover the passage we would have been covering on Sunday. We're going to hit it tonight and then tomorrow morning a little bit. So next Sunday, you can pick up right where we left off. We're not going to miss anything. But the spirit is so good because it actually tied in perfectly to the theme that he gave Leah this weekend. So that was awesome. So for tonight, we're going to go through very quickly. We're just going to hit on it. Luke 3, 21 through 38. And this is the question I want you to remember. Who is it that is calling me? Who is it that is calling me? We're just going to look at who this person, Jesus, is. So to start off, can someone please read Luke 3, 21 through 22? Leah, go. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Mm. Okay, so here we have a very brief mention of an event that actually gets a lot more playtime in the other Gospels. Okay, so it's like two verses in Luke. And if you go to other gospels, it's quite a few more. They go into more detail. So, and that is the baptism of Jesus. First thing we need to understand is that we know that Jesus was not getting baptized because he needed to repent. If you remember last week, Kyle taught about John the Baptist and his message of repentance and how his job was to prepare the way for Jesus to come. And he did that by saying, hey, Y'all need to repent. You being Jews ethnically is not enough for you to actually get into the kingdom of God. God wants you to repent, recognize that you're separated from him and turn toward righteousness. And that was John's message. Repent and be baptized. That was essentially it. So Jesus here is getting baptized, but it's not because he needs repentance. Um, can someone look up Matthew 3.15? Whoever gets to it first, just start reading loud. But Jesus said, it should be done, for I must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. I must carry out all that God requires. Another translation says to fulfill all righteousness, but I actually really like that. I have to, I must carry out all that God requires. So this is what he told John. Jesus shows up to get baptized, and John the Baptist is baptizing a bunch of people in the Jordan River Jesus shows up and John's like, I'm not going to baptize you. Like he basically says, no, no, you should baptize me. And Jesus says, right. And Jesus says, no, this must be done to fulfill all righteousness. This must be done to fulfill what God requires. So what does that even mean? All right. What does it mean? Okay. This is a very... When I read it this week, I just was really filled with uh, love for the Lord. And so I'm hoping to try and communicate this. So here's the deal. God asked humans to be baptized. So Jesus, as a human, got baptized, even though he did not need to. So the thing that we often miss in the salvation story We really focus on the death and the resurrection of Christ. And those are important and necessary. But what we often don't focus on is that the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection worked is because he lived his entire life before that. The actual, it's sinless as a human. So the whole gospel is actually that the birth, the life, the death, 
the resurrection and the ascension of Christ all took care of our punishment from sin, the power of sin, and will one day remove the presence of sin. And so that is like, right. So that's the whole thing. Like his whole life living as a human, he lived perfectly and he engaged in his humanity. Like he was 100% human and simultaneously 100% divine. And so um, when he was baptized, he's identifying with Israel's sin. And this was a foreshadowing of his taking on that sin in fullness on the cross. So there's a verse that says, he who knew no sin, Jesus, took on sin so that we could be made righteous. Uh, A guy named Michael Wilcox said it way better than I could. The cross will be the will be the fulfilling, the completion of a process which will have been going on for 30 years. That's how old Jesus was at this time, by the way, when he was baptized. The Christ will have been filling the place of a man among sinful people throughout the days of his incarnation, his whole life, and at no point more explicitly than when he accepts baptism along with them. So this is Christ saying, I'm a human. I'm a hundred percent a human. God asked you to be baptized as humans. So I, as a human, am going to get baptized along with you. And yet, okay, keep that in your mind. And yet, uh, I want to draw your attention to a few things. First, this is like a little side note, okay? Jesus was praying while he was baptized. And I wanted to note this for the future because as we keep talking about Luke, you will see prayer is a major theme in Jesus's life. So just as an aside, considering that our theme this weekend is called, I want us to meditate on the fact that even the perfect human, the only perfect human who has ever lived, regularly practiced prayer so that he could fulfill the calling God had put on his life. So if he can't do it without prayer... So that is going to be something right. we need to think about is that as we want to answer God's call, as we are thinking about who is this person who is calling us, we have to spend time with God. Jesus was in constant prayer. He often drew away to desolate places. That's what scripture says. It just means the wilderness. He drew away to spend time with God. And that's a lot of what we're doing this weekend. So that's like a little sermonette. Let's get back. He's been baptized. He's getting baptized. He's a human. And yet, <clears throat> what we have here in the baptism is um, off the top of my head. I didn't do the research well enough for this statement to be 100% true. But I think this is the only time in all of Scripture we have a visible, a visible presentation of the Trinity simultaneously. So you have Jesus. The Son, you have God the Father speaking, and you have God the Spirit coming down in a bodily form like a dove. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with the doctrine of the Trinity, we are not going to get into it tonight. (laughs) I would love to connect you to some resources that you could explore it. A lot of men and women who are way smarter than me have been spending thousands of years spilling ink on it, Mm -hmm. meditating on it. Praying on it. It's a beautiful part of our faith. Yeah. But to put it in a nutshell, um, Christians are not polytheists. Yeah. 
Okay? This is a misconception quite a few people have. We do not believe in multiple gods. We believe in one God who is one substance but three persons. He eternally exists as one substance but three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So, again, please come talk to me if that's like... If you're confused. If you're confused, <laughs> you should be. That's what I'm telling you. This, it would be weird if you were like, totally. Like, like, I, I completely understand it. Oh. 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 No, I totally forgot I needed to keep my phone here for the recording. Sorry. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, I know. So we have the Trinity. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. It may have not actually been a dove, like a literal dove, but we do know it was a bodily form. It was physical. So here's what this symbolized. Most scholars agree. Um, it was a form of anointing. And so if you were an Israelite, anointing would have meant a whole lot to you. Uh, they anointed things that were set apart for God. Anointing would often, uh, it would often be basically a priest or someone who was like a, a religious leader pouring oil on the head of someone who was set apart for God, often for leadership. So they would always anoint their future kings. Okay. One of the most famous stories of anointing is when Samuel, the prophet goes to Jesse's house in the old Testament, because God tells him go because the future King of Israel is there. And all of Jesse's sons walk by him. They're all strong and they look good. And God's like, not him, not him, not him, not him. And then Je Samuel's like, do you have any other sons? And Jesse's like, the youngest, he's out in the field, like, and he's like, bring him. And he comes in, and God's like, that's my king. So Samuel anoints David, all right, with oil. So you can imagine, like, the oil running over, like, through their hair, down their beards. Like, it was not a clean process. <laughs> so the Holy Spirit here is anointing Jesus. The Messiah really just means the anointed one. So he is anointing Jesus. Um... This baptism was the, uh, it was the, uh, it was like the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. We're about to, tomorrow, we'll talk about one more thing Jesus did before he officially began his ministry in Galilee. But this baptism was like, right. This baptism was like, this is it. This is like God going, all right, we're starting. He is my anointed one. So that was the Holy Spirit. Now, this is combined with the voice of God the Father saying, you are my beloved son with whom, with whom I am well pleased. This actually calls back to a few Old Testament messianic passages, whether they were prophecies about who the Messiah would be or psalms that were written about the coming Messiah, specifically Isaiah 42.1 and Psalm 2.7. We're not going to read those now, but if you want to go back to them, the language of God's statement, heart like, would have brought to mind these messianic passages that the Israelites would have known. So basically the Lord's like, this is the one, like he's it. John is preparing the way he who has come in the spirit of Elijah is coming and proclaiming a <laughs> baptism of repentance. Christ comes, embraces his humanity by being baptized 
And so here we are. Remember, I said Christ is human, and yet this is a very powerful moment because unlike the rest of the Israelites and the people who decided to be baptized, whose baptism symbolized their separation from God, Christ's baptism was evidence that he was not separated from God. In fact, it was the exact opposite. So while every other human was lining up in that really long line to get baptized, and they were essentially saying, I need to change. I have to be righteous. I need to change and point myself toward righteousness, towards what God wants. Jesus gets baptized, and God says he is righteous. There's no repentance going on here. So he is human, and yet he is not. He is divine. He is simultaneously one of us, and yet he is distinct. So the next part of the passage we are not going to read. I was wondering about that. No, we're not going to read. Uh, verses 23 through 38, we're not going to read. This is the genealogy of Christ. There is... Yeah, I know. Oh, yes. So wait, don't wait, no. What? Don't ruin what I'm about to say. Yeah, don't no spoiling. So there's another genealogy of Christ given in the Gospel of Matthew, I believe. So here's the deal. You read that genealogy, you're gonna be like, what? Like you might think, yawn. Uh so here's a few things. If you're having trouble going to sleep, read the genealogy. So here's a few things that might help you in your understanding. Uh, I would strongly recommend having a commentary next to you if you're going to study a genealogy. It would greatly help. But the first thing you need to know about Hebrew genealogies is that when it says son and father, it does not always mean the literal son and father. It could mean a, just a descendant or a uh, ancestor. So it says like, Joseph, the son of Heli, or Heli, or however you pronounce his name. That may not mean Joseph was literally Heli's son. It might mean he was his grandson or his great-grandson. So often they would skip generations, okay? So just keep that in mind if you're, like, reading through this. You're like, oh, yeah, okay, okay, okay. It helps because sometimes there's discrepancies in genealogies, and so different authors chose different generations for different reasons. So that leads us to our second thing. Why did Luke include this, right? He wasn't just killing time. Remember from week one, he's like, I'm writing to you, Theophilus, to like make an account. Like, why did he think this was important to prove Jesus's messiahship? There's a reason he wrote this. So we're not going to do this justice, but I'm going to hit on it tonight or hit on a few points. The first thing in verse 31 it shows that Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant, uh, which I think is in 2 Samuel 7, but I've touched on this a few weeks ago during my teaching, where God promises David, your house will rule Israel forever. Your house. And Jesus is a descendant of David. He is part of David's house. Not only is he a descendant of David, he's a descendant of the right son of David because God tells David, your son Solomon will take your place and be king next. And that is the line. That's the line that I'm going to set up this house, okay? And so Jesus is a descendant of Zerubbabel, who is a descendant of Solomon, who was the son of David. So we see in verse 31, Luke is saying, hey, Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant. So you can put a check right by that. 
the ancient Israelites would have been looking for someone who was David's progeny. Second, he fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 34, Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. Abraham was called, he himself was called, into a completely different life. The Lord called him away from his family, away from the city that he had grown up in, into this wilderness, Canaan, where he lived as a refugee or an immigrant for a long time, just wandering. And the Lord told him, I will give you a people and I will give you a place. And there's another P that I can't think of. But he basically made a covenant with them. And he said, I'm going to make you into a big nation. And through that nation, you will bless the world. Okay. And so Abraham is the father of the Israelites. So he had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, who had 12 sons. And those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus was an Israelite. So he fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, the whole world would be blessed. So what God told Abraham, through you, through your descendants, the whole world would be blessed. Jesus is the one who's going to make that happen. And he is not just a savior for Israel, but all people. In verse 38, Jesus is a son of Adam. He's a human. All of us are humans. I don't think any of us in here are ethnically Jewish. I could be wrong. So, <laughs> Jafir. <laughs> she goes, actually. Um, so that means this part in particular is the best news for us. Okay? The reason all of us are sitting here is because God had a bigger plan than just saving the Israelites. But it was for the Gentiles too. And that's us. And then finally, not only is he a human... And he's the son of Adam, but he is the son of God. Verse 38 as well. So once again, we see that Jesus is a human and he is God. So this moment, this baptism, was, it was a very, very powerful moment in Jesus's life. Up until this point, he had been living as a regular uh, Palestinian man in, ancient, in the ancient Middle East right? His dad was a carpenter. He had probably learned that trade. So he had grown up in a house. He had brothers and sisters. He was the oldest. He probably took a larger role in like learning his dad's trade. He was just a regular guy. Um, often I researched a little bit. The age of 30 was a very common age for men to step up into whatever they were supposed to do. And so there might be, you know, there's some, obviously some symbolism there that he would have been 30, between 30, no, he was 30 years old when this happened. So it's basically, like I said earlier, it's the Lord saying, this is it. We're starting. Here we go. Okay. So I wanted to try something. You can close your eyes if you want. You don't have to. We're going to do like a little imagination exercise. And I, w I want us to try and really place ourselves like in what was happening, okay? So I'm just gonna read this. Helen, you are amazing. She is like, okay. She put her I, hood up and she's like, I am right. here. I love that. I know. I could tell that you put your hand up in front of my face. I was like, why, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? I can so, see lights. You can close your eyes. If that will make you fall asleep, don't do that. Um, but here we go. So I'm just gonna read something. I want you to try it as much as you can, as much as we can take ourselves out of the 21st century 
sitting in a living room with AC. <laughs> Imagine with me, if you will, that it is a very hot day near the Jordan River in ancient Israel. John is standing in the river, yelling at the top of his voice to try and be heard over the very, very large crowd that you are standing in. There is a huge line going into the river and out, and John is just dunking person after person, continuing to yell his message. And imagine that he's even going hoarse, right? But he's not going to stop because this message consumes him and has consumed him literally since he was in his mother's womb. He's coming. The Messiah is coming. Repent. Be baptized. Turn toward righteousness. He's coming. And all the while, he's dunking people underneath that water. And then all of a sudden, the crowd parts, and Jesus begins to walk toward John, and John stops talking, and all of a sudden, he yells somehow even louder, Behold, the Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus pauses at the riverbank and takes off his sandals. He steps into the water. His robes are starting to get saturated. The water is whirling around his body and his feet are navigating the river bottom, how it can be muddy and rocky at the same time. And he's walking toward his cousin. John is probably thinking, this is it. Like, he's gonna, he's gonna start baptizing people. Like, he's finally gonna do it. All this preparing I've done. John at one point said, he will increase and I must decrease. And he's thinking, this is the moment that I will completely decrease and Jesus will take over. And that does not happen. Jesus comes to him and says, I need you to baptize me. And John protests and fights him, but eventually concedes to the quiet authority in Jesus's voice. This must be done. So John takes Jesus by the neck, the back of the neck, very gently, and by his arms, and he submerges him. And as Jesus rises, water is rolling off his face and his beard, just like the oil would have rolled off the face and the beard of David all those years ago. And he is praying. Then all of a sudden, the sky opens. Okay, you're standing in this huge crowd. It's hot. And the sky opens up right above Jesus and a physical presence falls on him. Maybe it's a bird. You're not quite sure. A voice that sounds like a thousand waterfalls declares, this is my son. In him I am well pleased. The crowd shudders with the noise and possibly is lifting up their arms to block the light that may have been emanating from this physical presence that's resting on Jesus. Is this really happening? And then as suddenly as they come, the voice and the spirit disappear. There's almost an offensive mixture of the human and the divine. There's the dank smell of a river bottom combined with the fierce glow of the bodily presence of the Holy Spirit. The voice of God pierces the Judean wilderness, leaving as abruptly as it had come, and the sounds of buzzing insects in the water lapping along the shore are left in its wake. And there's Christ, dripping wet, anointed. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the son of Joseph, the son of David, the son of Abraham, 
and the Son of God. He is here and he is calling us to him.